Welcome to Places, Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In this episode, I want to find out how long-term roles impact an actor's career. On TV, a long-term role might mean being a series regular on a show for more than one season. In theater, a long-term role might mean being cast in a play or musical that runs close to a year or longer. Actress Sarah Steele is someone who can speak to both. She's had long-term parts on screen and on stage in the same time span of her career. Her TV character, Marissa Gold, on the CBS drama The Good Wife and its spin-off show The Good Fight, has spanned nine years of her life and has grown from guest role to series regular. In theater, Sarah's long-term role has been playing Bridget in Stephen Karam's award-winning play The Humans. Sarah was part of the original cast, which has performed the play off-Broadway, on-Broadway, and on tour in L.A. and London. That's more than three years of staying in character. So what does a long-term role do for actors? Well, the short answer is it keeps them employed. But it's not always simple. Long-term roles give an actor time to shape and develop a character. But it does carry the risk that actors will be associated with one type of character— and will find themselves getting called in for parts in the exact same vein. There's greater financial comfort, of course, but there's also the rigid scheduling that inhibits new projects. Actors need job security, but their careers depend on the ability to play many parts. So what does an actor with long-term roles think about staying in character that long? That's today's episode. But first... Something interesting from the intersection of art and finance. At the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Guggenheim, both art museums in New York City, protesters have begun voicing their anger at a major arts benefactor, the Sackler family, whose pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, is responsible for developing the opioid OxyContin and deceiving the public about the drug's addictive properties. The Sackler family has been hugely philanthropic to several of the world's great art museums. Recently, an activist group called Payne has asked that museums remove the Sackler's signage from their galleries and refuse further funding from them. The members of Payne are artists themselves who have wrestled with prescription drug addiction. Their aim isn't to punish art museums, but rather to hold them accountable for their fundraising. Up until this point, the Sacklers' influence over the art world has been written in stone, literally. But as they face a criminal investigation, it's feasible that we'll see their engraved signs removed. Art museums would much prefer that visitors and new donors focus on the artwork. And now, here's my interview with Sarah Stale. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Of course. Happy to be here. On the CBS show, The Good Wife, you were brought in to play the daughter of Eli Gold, played by the excellent Alan Cumming, who is the campaign manager for Alicia Florek, played by Juliana Margulies. How did you get cast, and what interested you in the character? Um, well, it was sort of a stroke of luck that I was at Columbia University at the time, and... 
the good wife had brought me in for other parts that ended up just being like something where a whole episode is like focused on this this just parts other than Marissa Gold. And just for one reason or another, I was never able to go in for The Good Wife until Marissa Gold. And that happened to occur, it was originally just supposed to be like a two-episode arc of like Alan Cummings' daughter showing up for two seconds. And it happened to be on like my Christmas break from school. And I was like, okay, well, I can go in on this. And I went in uh, and I got the part and I did a couple of episodes while I was still balancing being at Columbia. And then I sort of didn't think about it because I just, I thought that that was it because it really was. And then they didn't really bring me back until season six um, when I was, when I had graduated from college and I was doing this full time. So it was this really funny like stroke of luck that this has now developed into like such a huge part of my life and my career. So initially it was like a, a scheduling fluke. 100%. 100%, 100%. Yeah, like there was another thing that I think was about, I think it was about like some music star that like they wanted me to come in for that I couldn't come in for, but it was a really good part. And I was like, oh man, it just didn't work out with scheduling. But like if I had done that, I don't I don't think that my life would be what it is now. It's just so funny. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So your character, Marissa Gold, is one of the few characters to move from The Good Wife to its spinoff, The Good Fight, mm-hmm. along with marvelous Christine Baranski. Uh, but unlike Baranski's character, Diane Lockhart, who is a fixture on both shows, mm-hmm. Marissa initially has a more subtle role, as you mentioned, that expands over time, mm-hmm. which leads me to the topic of fan favorites. <laughs> so I think often the fan favorite on a TV show starts as sort of a bit character. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they're so beloved and because they're a good fit for the actor playing them, the writers see what's happening and they deepen the character's storyline. What did you see happening with Marissa? Were you aware of it as it happened? Yeah, that's very astute. I mean, I think that, I think there was sort of an episode in season six of The Good Wife where she got a lot to do and she was very insightful and funny. And after that, I just remember I was doing a lot of theater at the time and people would come see me in shows. I would get off stage and all these people wanted to talk to me about was Marissa Gold on Hmm. The Good Wife. And I remember feeling a little bit like, you just saw me do something like much harder, like much more intense. It's interesting to me that you want to talk about this. But I think for some reason, the character was just not something people had seen before. A very, very confident Jewish young woman who I've I've come to start saying doesn't look like Blake Lively. <laughs> it's not every day that you sort of see someone like that, like killing it and being super confident. I think that there's this very unfortunate thing in Hollywood where like only really beautiful women are allowed to be like confident and smart and kill it. And if you're, if you don't look a certain way, you're expected to sort of apologize for yourself. And I think that Marissa really like flips that on his head. And, and now granted, you're implying that you're not beautiful. I'm not, and I'm not meaning to. <laughs> I'm just saying, and I, and because I know, because I don't, I don't want to, you know, it's very hard to talk about yourself that way. But, um, but I do think that I always, you know, had this concern, very, especially early on in my career, that because I don't look like a model, I'm constantly going to be playing people who aren't confident, which is just not true of me. I'm, I've always been confident, and that used to just really, um, 
make me sad. And mm-hmm. I do think that uh, in my theater career and with Marissa Gold, like, that has really turned around. And I think people have understood, like, I don't, this girl's not apologizing for herself. Mm-hmm. So I'm very grateful for the character for that reason. I think you you point to something interesting because on The Good Wife and on The Good Fight, so frequently the storylines get very intense and very serious. And particularly on The Good Fight, actually both shows um, deal with such uh, timely issues that have such gravity. And I think because your character comes a bit as as a fish out of water, Mm -hmm. that she doesn't quite have a distinct place or reason to be there. But she sort of starts killing it, as you say, because she is so ballsy and so brazen and just comfortable in her own skin, I think that adds levity to an otherwise very dramatic show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that kind of, like, you never know what's going to come out of her mouth because she's just so brazen and confident, um, creates that kind of fan favorite personality on a show that where everybody else is poised and cool Mm -hmm, and collected. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I yeah, I, I I do think that's that's a part of, you know, people's reaction to her, which I <laughs> didn't t- totally understand at first. Yeah. yeah. So setting a date for this interview with you involved some hurdles of scheduling mm-hmm. that actually address a topic I want to discuss with you, namely the unpredictable nature of a recurring guest role on a TV series. So despite your appearances throughout season two of The Good Fight, often in pretty pivotal storylines. Was your role left open-ended for season three? Oh, that's funny. I am a series regular on The Good Fight. I see. I was a guest on The Good Wife. I see. um, Which meant that I had more freedom over my schedule. Um, But... Yeah, but I but I am a regular on this one, which which just means that they they really own me. They can change anything whenever. Oh, you know? I see. So the flexibility that you need is not will you be in it, but what will the episode look like or when will you need to film? Exactly. And they can and usually what happens is they're dealing with the schedules of the guests. And when you're a guest, because you're not being paid as much, they have to work around whatever you whatever scheduling you want. And when you're a regular, you're in the opposite position, which is that it's because you are being paid, they can have you whenever they want. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting because really with the same people, I've gone from being a guest on The Good Wife in which I could say, sorry, I'm doing a play. Like, if you can't just board me on this date and this day and this this day, I can't do this episode. And, they, and they'd be like, okay, we're really sorry not to have you, but we'll write you out. And on this, it's like if a play wants me, you know, recently there was like a great workshop of a, a, a musical that I'm attached to right now um, that was having like its per- first big public uh, reading. And I really, really tried to work it out with the TV show. But at the end of the day, they were like, we can't give you that much time. And I couldn't do that. So it's really like, a commitment, a huge commitment to decide to become a series regular on a show. And actors are kind of trapped in a way because you really cannot make a, a, a very comfortable living just doing theater. Um, but for most of us theater folk, that is what we're passionate about. And we end up having to take these jobs. And now I love my TV show. I like, I have a great time. I love the people. I think it's an important show. I love being on something that reaches such a wide audience. However, theater is my passion. And when I can't do it because 
I'm waiting around to find out what the next episode is and how much I'm going to be in it. That's hard. It really is hard. Right. And so then you find yourself turning down a theater role for the TV series you are committed to. And sometimes (laughs) then you're not in the episode that much. You know, like you don't actually have a very big part in the episode. You just have to be available because scheduling a television show with so many moving parts is such a nightmare that they need 16 of us or whatever to be available at all times because they're dealing with other people's schedules. How far in advance would you know? So it's... It's (laughs) like, do you get scripts per episode? You do get scripts per episode. When you're dealing with the show where the writing is so good, one of the drawbacks of that is that they are rewriting until the last minute. Like, they are rewriting until we shoot. Mm -hmm. And often... And weaving in timely elements. Totally. Yeah, exactly. So, so, I mean, I think that what the people, what the people do who organize the show is, like, incredible. Um, So... Yeah, usually we're getting the script like, you know, really a couple days before we start shooting and we're getting the schedule which will tell you what the next, you know, two and a half weeks of your life is sometimes the night before that starts. Wow. Yeah. So it can be pretty difficult. And it's fascinating watching a show like The Good Fight that has so many characters because so many episodes have character-specific actors who are just in that one for that, that episode or a couple episodes. Um, how many really prominent theater people come into play. I mean, the biggest one, and this is a, a more of a regular role than a one-off, um, is Audra McDonald, yeah. who is as high in theater royalty as they come. Yeah, yeah. And she probably had to shift theater roles because of this ongoing commitment. For sure, for sure. Yeah, she's so she's a series regular too. So she's, you know, subject to all these names things that I'm talking about. And I'm, you know, I'm sure she's getting many more theater offers than I'm getting and not able to do. So as you gain more ownership over a TV character, mm-hmm. is there more of an involvement with writers? Do, do Does the writer's room accept input and ideas from actors the way that the rehearsal process in theater might? Yeah, I mean... This is one reason that I love so much working on this TV show is that they are they are collaborative that way. You know, in the same way that you said they sort of saw what I was doing and started to write around it. We have meetings with the writer's room at the beginning of every season um, where they sort of tell us what they have in mind. They ask us questions about – like I remember last season they asked me like – she's so unflappable. Like, what do you think could really rattle her? Hmm. And I thought that was such an interesting question. They all asked great questions. We we really had like an hour where we talked about the character. They asked me if there was anything I wanted for her or wanted her to do that season. I said something. They did it. You know, That's like so cool. I... What did you suggest? <laughs> it's like maybe a little embarrassing. But I really wanted her to like have a love interest. I wanted to see like what that part of her life was like because I'm so curious about a woman like that who, as you say, is so brazen and confident, like what romance in her life is like because it's sometimes not as easy for those women. Mm-hmm. Um, and she asks him out. And she asks him out. Yeah, exactly. That just made me so happy. It made me feel very collaborative. And yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's been like way less collaborative than my theater career, you know, because sometimes in your theater career, you will be working on a play and you'll be like, this part isn't really working for me. And the player will just be like, no, that's what it is. That's what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, 
theater I find much more engaging just because it's much more challenging for the actor. But um, I, w- I wouldn't say that it's more that it's more collaborative mm-hmm. necessarily. So that actually is a good segue into talking about The Humans, um, which is a really remarkable play that ran off-Broadway, on-Broadway, in tour around the country and in London. Mm -hmm. The playwright Stephen Karam had you in mind, I've heard and read, um, for the character Bridget. So did that involve collaboration or was it more like he had written it, you already had a kind of rapport or friendship, and then perhaps you found a certain kinship quickly because you knew that you were envisioned for the role. What I would say about that is is that we, we had done, Stephen and I had done speech and debate together. We were close friends. He had me in mind when he wrote it. I remember once we did a sort of uh, reading of it where Bridget was like, a, I would say just a little harsher than she ended up being. And I remember Stephen came up to me and said, like, I feel like I want this to be the version where she is, like, as compassionate as you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I really tried to take those words, which were – which felt harsh to me and bring it down to, like, as – sort of, like, as compassionate as I could possibly play it. Uh-huh. And I think in seeing me wrestle with that, he realized – like, oh, no, maybe if that's what I want, maybe there's just like a little bit of teeth that I have to take out of this. And then in the next draft, it was like – it was just like the some of the stuff I yelled at my mother towards the end was like a little less um, devastating. Mm-hmm. And um, and and so I, if anything, it's like a – it's like a he writes it, I try to pull it off in the way that he wants. And then if through that, maybe he's able to see um, – <laughs> like if Sarah can't land this bird, maybe no one's going to land this bird. Let me look at this again. I think it's so cool that you just mentioned to play it as compassionate as you. So right, knowing know. so sweet, yeah, knowing so sweet you personally, that. yeah, yeah. So he sort of knew what you could intuitively find as a human, as a as yeah. a person, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then what you could artistically find as an actor, and to sort of meld the two. Yeah, yeah, and 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 to look at that and say like okay, well like what's working here and what's not. I I mean it's so it's it's so it was really just such a career highlight to have a playwright who I really think is a genius. I don't use that word hyperbolically. Like try to write in your voice and nail it. Like mm-hmm. then come in and be like, "Oh yeah, this is exactly how I talk." So I kind <laughs> of can't go wrong in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the play won a lot of honors. Uh, I was a finalist for the Pulitzer. It won Best Play at the Tonys. Um, But one award that I'm sure was meaningful to you in particular was the Best Ensemble Drama Desk Award. Um, Over this long-term span, I think you started in 2015, Mm -hmm. and then it was in London just in the fall. Mm -hmm. So that's like three years um, of being living with a character and performing her so frequently. How did you grow as an ensemble and how did you grow in your character? Yeah, man. So it was my first time coming back to a play. You know, we had about a year, a little over, I think like a year and a half between when Broadway ended and we started doing it in LA. And 
my life had profoundly changed between those two times uh, for various, you know, personal reasons. And I was like, I feel like this is going to be, I, I just can't imagine how I'm going to play this character. And I remember reading it again and just realizing so much that I had missed when we did it on Broadway. And wow. I was so excited to have another shot at it just because I was a, a year and a half older. And there, I really felt that there were things that I understood that I just didn't know the first time. And it meant so much to me when I was in rehearsal in L.A. Um, our, sound, our sound guy, uh, Fitz Patton, told me on opening night that as soon as he saw me up on stage, like just rehearsing it again, he turned to Joe Mantello and said, oh, she grew up. (laughs) And I did sort of feel that, that there was some difference between when I did it off-Broadway and on-Broadway, which was really like a, uh, you know, a, a good actress knowing what's needed from a play. And then when I did it in LA and London, I really felt like this was, like I was an adult who really understood, um, this person and how she was relating to her family, which I just don't know if I really got the first time. So it was, so I was so grateful to get to do it again. And also just, yeah, I mean, all of us together, we were a true, I consider those people family, you know, more than other casts that I've been in just because we were together for so long. Uh, I, I always say like the cast of the humans, we really didn't like go out much together or drink much together. I think because it was, it's, we did have that like prickly, too intimate uh-huh. uh, feeling, a- and in the same way that like a, you know you have a couple meals with your parents, and then you're like with your family, and then you're like, okay, all right, everybody, like yeah. now I'm gonna go back to New York. Right. Great to see you. We were sort of like you don't that. go to the bar with your mom and dad. Yeah, right. And we were like that. It was like that would have been too intimate for us in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's 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 wild. <laughs> what was built, you know between that group of people. Yeah. So I think the the main thing that I'm so interested in in the past few years that you've had yeah. is the long-term role yeah, in theater and on stage. <laughs> no, and you're such like uh, this perfect example because you've had it in both realms in the same time span. I know. So it's, it's like strange. it's like a scientist creating this perfect control experiment like how you handle a long-term role in the same span of your life mm-hmm. in these two overlapping but very different yeah. um, kinds of artistic media. And I'm just interested in how you differentiate between a long-term role in theater where you grow and understand a character in the same conflict again and again mm-hmm, and again. Mm-hmm, yeah. And in television, where you grow and understand a character in a shifting conflict over time. Yeah, that's a very good question. It's very different. And and the truth is, I think that when you do a play for as long as I did The Humans, what you have to what you what you what you learn is just to be, I think, a much braver Uh, actor and performer I mean by the end of doing the humans in London I would go out and just try it completely differently than I'd ever done it and I'd never been that sort of free with myself on stage I think especially because I did it as a kid and because I'm not trained I relied very very heavily on just like how I know what I know the the part that I know 
needs to be served by me in the play as a whole. And towards the end, I really sort of trusted myself much more and let go of a lot of that. And I remember one night coming home and sort of writing in my journal, like, you don't have to show, you don't have to show the audience anything. Like, I, I think that I, that, that in the humans, I, I always was just like, oh, they have to see, they have to see this part of it, you know? And eventually towards the end, uh, the, the, the space that we did the humans in London was so small. I really was just going out there and fully just living it, not caring if they got it or not. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and it, it just made me realize that I didn't necessarily have to work so hard and that I could be much freer with myself and, and that is like a gift that I will have as a stage actress, you know, for a long time. Whereas I think with Marissa Gold, it's actually for me been more about in in certain ways pushing the writers to understand like this person's growing up. Like yeah. I'm 30 years old. I know that I first played this character when I was 21 years old, yeah. but like you have to allow her to have a boyfriend. You have to give her a promotion, you know, mm-hmm. and not just have her be this sort of like quirky little sister all the time. Yeah. And I really do think like in a way uh, I've, we've, we've accomplished that and she is a grown up and she does have her feet on the ground and she's staying in this job and she's, she's, she's making herself important. Um, and so I don't know with Marissa, it's felt much more like sort of advocating for her in a mm-hmm. way. Um, whereas with Bridget, like I'm, I'm so happy with what, uh, with everything that's been, that was written for her. I, I, I think that like her journey, it, it, as far as the writing is like pretty much perfect. And it's just a matter of like how I want to do it every night. Yeah. So, so many great actors have been so fluid between theater and Hollywood, um, and you can see the ones who are really passionate about theater who just, like, come back continuously. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking Kate Blanchett mm-hmm. and Ethan Hawke, who's in mm-hmm. a Broadway show right now, mm-hmm. James Earl Jones, um, just real, like, Hollywood legends who yeah, yeah. really have their – maybe not their heart in theater, but they, they just come back to it so frequently. Yeah, they need it, yeah. Do you think that because television is at – such a, a huge point of pro, of productivity now and such uh, like a golden time for for talent and diversity is it just the most fluid time to have your feet in both worlds yeah i mean i i do think it's a moment where like people of all you know colors and shapes and everything are getting big jobs on tv which is very very exciting we used to be divided up into these sad little categories, mm-hmm. um, like the romantic lead. Yeah, and, or like, or like, oh, like she's got to really be quirky, so she's definitely not going to be the lead of something. You know, I don't feel. I used to really, I really grew up thinking like, oh, because you know, first of all, I object just outright to some thought that I am just quirky. I'm like, <laughs> like I was like, I feel like people would just look at me and go like, oh, well, you're quirky. I'd be like, no. I don't look like a model. Like, that's, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm quirky. Like, I think it's okay, the curly yeah, like, hair. Yeah, I'm just, I was just like, how simplistic, like, can we get yeah. here? And I do think a lot of that is changing. You just can't get away with some of that stuff anymore. And, you know, what's sad is that now it's becoming sort of like, 
this other thing where it's like, okay, well, we're going to have like a few movies this year about a girl who doesn't think she's pretty, then realizes she is. And like, and, and you're just like, okay, now this is just becoming commodified. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, that in that way, I think, uh, you know, it's a very exciting time for television. And I'm very excited about uh, this moment. I guess I think people who do a lot of theater, I tend to think that they're probably like me in that um, they just wouldn't be in this job if it weren't for theater. Does it feel like as your presence on TV develops, does that allow for greater flexibility for theater because the financial worry is gone? Um, well, you know, it's a it's a double-edged sword because it because right now, this won't be true forever, but right now, like my scheduling flexibility is just much less than it was before I was a series regular. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, 100% once the TV show's over, like I'm going to have, I'm going to be able to relax so much more because I'm not going to be thinking like, oh, I absolutely need to like take the next whatever comes my way for the money. Um, and that's, that's a huge relief and also allows me to, um, yeah, to say no to things if I don't really think they're good or if I feel like they're demeaning in some way, you know, especially as like, as a sort of a more unconventional person. So you mentioned a a theater uh, project, a musical. Can you Mm -hmm. talk about that? I can't yet just because it's not, um, it's not, you know, really set in stone. No problem. Sorry. No problem. (laughs) So season three of The Good Fight premieres, I believe, on March 14th. I think that's right. Is that right? I think so. Very exciting. I'm not 100% sure. I'm excited to see where Marissa goes next season. (laughs) Um, And thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.